Welcome to Alternative Fund Insight, exploring the trends and meeting the personalities driving hedge funds and private markets. This episode is brought to you in association with the Independent Research Forum, enabling professional investors to access a wide range of high-quality independent research through a diverse group of hand-picked providers. IRF publishes a fortnightly newsletter highlighting the latest original and thought-provoking research. For more information, visit independentresearchforum.com. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Sona Menon, partner at Cambridge Associates in Boston for an invaluable insight into the work of outsourced CIOs and current trends in asset allocation. As head of the pension practice for North America at Cambridge, she is responsible for over $20 billion in institutional assets. We explore her work making investment decisions for endowments, foundations, healthcare institutions and pensions. This episode was recorded on the 8th of September. Sona, thank you for joining me on AFI this week. It would be great to have an introduction to the work of outsourced chief investment officers and how you and your team operate and work with clients. Absolutely. Um, Will, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've been serving as an outsourced chief investment officer for, um, for almost 15 years now. And I can say that OCIO means different things to, to different people. Um, and different organizations. But um, I'm happy to talk about how we do it at Cambridge Associates. At the highest level, I think what we're trying to do is create an, an investment office experience for our clients who have outsourced us. So essentially, we would be just like having an in-house investment office, but one that's actually sitting inside of Cambridge Associates. Um, we, My team is built uh, like any other investment team might be with subject matter experts and you know, various alternative assets. Um, I have an actuary, I have operational expertise, um, um, analytical expertise, et cetera. And what we're really trying to do is help um, the institutions essentially build and then execute and oversee the portfolio on an ongoing basis. Um, and how it really actually works with clients is that we work with them up front quite a bit to understand what their objectives are, Mm-hmm. Um, what their risk parameters are, <clears throat> and really understand their institutional context to recommend ultimately an investment strategy that would align with that. Um, and once they approve that, and that's sort of a joint approval process, mm-hmm. um, we, you know, essentially are delegated um, the, the, the sort of the right and the responsibility to do the rest. And so that means we do the manager selection, the hiring and the firing. We do the portfolio construction, we, we do the tactical positioning, the rebalancing, and ultimately, you know, report back to them on how the portfolio is going on a quarterly basis. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, so let's talk about endowments and pensions, because they are the main client groups that you work with. So what are they looking for at the moment? And what's the difference between the two of them? Yeah, absolutely. They are different for sure. Um, and they therefore have very different investment strategies, I believe. Um, at the highest level, you know, endowments are, um, in, they're institutions that want to exist in, in perpetuity. Um, and 
they want to maximize their risk-adjusted return. So they are focusing on just improving and enhancing their total return. They, because they want to exist in perpetuity, uh, they have a much longer uh, investment horizon. Uh, mm-hmm. And what that really means is that they can take on more risk uh, because they want more return. Um, they also can take on more illiquidity um, because they have a very long time horizon. Um, and what that also means essentially is that they can tolerate a little bit more drawdown. And, and I say all this in comparison to pensions, which I'll talk about in a minute. Mm. But broadly speaking, because of these sort of parameters, um, the investment strategy for endowments is very much focused on, you know, maximizing total return, but doing so in a sort of a very well risk adjusted way. Um, endowments tend to have the endowments we work with um, tend to have large allocations to um, alternative assets. Uh, um, particularly private equity uh, and venture uh, real estate, et cetera, because, you know, they are looking for that sort of illiquidity premium o- over time. On the other hand, with pensions, I would say pension come in all uh, sort of shapes and sizes. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit more difficult to generalize, but l- let me give it a shot. Mm. Um, we were working with basically all types of pension plans, corporate defined benefit plans, public plans, nonprofit pensions sort of associated with universities or or hospitals. Um, And they're also all different in where they are in their life cycle. Some of them are open, some of them are frozen, uh, hard closed. Uh, Some of them are poorly funded and some of them are well-funded. And I I say all this to say that that all results in different investment strategies as well. Um, So for example, um, I'm working with, I, I work with a lot of unfunded, uh, underfunded, poorly funded um, uh, defined benefit plans that are focused on growth. Um, and there's a number of ways to do that. And then there, I also work with, you know, very well funded frozen plans that are really focused on protecting their funded status. Um, and there I'm focusing much more on the liability hedging. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, it, it sounds like on the pension side, there's more use of, of risk management. It, ca- it can be often about downside protection. And we had the huge volatility and, and the sell-offs last year. So maybe just a bit about how pensions were affected by the market events. Yeah, absolutely. So I imagine you're referring to sort of 2022. Mm. I know that you know many of us look back at 2022 and we think, right, double-digit di- negative returns on equities. Um, and that's indeed true. Uh, but the big story for pensions was that, um, you know, was sort of the astronomical, unprecedented interest rate rise that we experienced um, in 2022. Um, you know, 10-year treasuries went from one and a half to almost four. And that has a huge impact on, you know, U.S.-defined benefit plans because essentially it helped. It's a good thing. Um, it helped their funded status improve. Um, and despite the sell-off on the equity side, you know, the rate rise um, helped help them be in a much better funded status position. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what essentially that meant uh, was that once you have a, a much better um, funded status, you know, let's say you go from 90 to 100 or 85 to 95, essentially that means that, you know, most plans want look to de-risk and we help them. We help them de-risk. We've been helping them de-risk, and I continue to be focusing on that into this year. Um, and it's a, it's a good it's a good thing. Um, that's um, it's a, it's what pensions want um, essentially for their funded status to to improve and for them to lock in those gains. So 
essentially what de-risking means is, is, you know, moving away slightly from the growth oriented assets and more into liability hedging assets. Yeah, yeah. So that shift from equities to fixed income, is that something that has continued this year? Yeah, it has, because, um, you know, uh, equities, even though equities have actually, you know, rebounded a bit, um, uh, rates are, you know, range bound, uh, but the funded status has is health mildly improved. And, and so, yes, we're continuing to de-risk a, a lot of portfolios that that have experienced that. Um, not, not all, because, of course, there are some plans and particularly public plans, which have a fairly different strategy and, and are still underfunded and we're still looking for growth there. But for the defined benefit, um, sort of the corporate plans, um, we are still very much focused on, um, on de-risking. Um, and I'm happy to talk a little bit more about what exactly that entails. But, but yes, we are still doing that. Yeah. And so that will mean that on the pension side, maybe less hedge fund exposure. Um, what about on the endowment side of things? The endowments are very much still sort of in growth mode. Um, and as I said, they're existing in, in perpetuity there. I think the conversation is more about, um, <clears throat> you know, inflation is higher. Um, and so how do we sort of build a portfolio that's going to do well after inflation? So how do we achieve sort of the higher real returns? Um, you know, there's been volatility in the markets. There will continue to be volatility. So, so the conversation there's more th- more about how do I get the growth that I want in this new era of you know higher inflation, and and how do they? Um, well, look, I think that we need to think about building resilient portfolios that will be all weather at some point in some way, shape, or form. Um, I'll give you a few examples. Um, mm. You know, what, a few years over the last several years, when bond yields have been so low, a lot of endowments have had a, a very low exposure to bonds because really there was no very little protection to be had, and, and yields were so low. Uh, now, with bond yields being higher, um, a lot of endowments are sort of building up some of their exposure for protection. So that's sort of building the downside protection. On mm. the other hand, I see a continued interest in. Um, in alternative assets. So um, uh, that includes sort of the range, um, you know, private equity, um, you know, private credit continues to be very interesting, um, especially in this current rate environment. Um, and, and hedge funds, right? They are, they are continuing with their hedge fund programs because they are not sort of being forced to, to de-risk or, or glide down a glide path the way a pension plan might have to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think you could explain the, the glide path? Absolutely. Um, so a glide path is sort of a framework that we build for, for, for defined benefit pension plans, whereby as the funded status improves over time, there's a mechanism by which to change the asset allocation. Um, and essentially what it means is as funded status improves, you gradually move assets away from growth-oriented assets such as public equities, you know, hedge funds, growth fixed income, and more into interest rate hedging oriented assets such as long credit or long treasuries or, you know, intermediate credit, but things that would hedge the liability. Um, Because at this point, you know, you want to take less interest rate um, uh, risk Mm -hmm. and sort of lock in the gains. And, you know, implicitly what that means is that your asset allocation does shift when these triggers happen, as in the, the way I described in the past year, they've happened for a number of our 
our pension plans. Um, and so when you shift, you sort of have to have, you know, a somewhat nimble um, portfolio where you can and are able to shift. And, and that, you know, has to, it's a, it's a thoughtful process that you have to undertake. Yeah. And so that's at the heart of the, 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 the de-risking that you mentioned. Yes, absolutely. So, um, for example, uh, you know, I, I didn't necessarily want to unwind the hedge fund programs um, or reduce the hedge fund allocations in some of these plans. But, you know, it, w- it was a good story that their funded status has improved. And now we're we need less growth, essentially. So, um, you know, we reduced public equities exposure alongside with hedge fund exposure um, to fund some of the bonds. And while it didn't feel, you know, fantastic to be selling equities after sort of a sell-off of last year, I was actually buying bonds that were that had sold off even more. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a bad thing. Yeah, interesting. Okay, I'd like to dig into the alternative side a little bit more. Um, so maybe we could start off with private credit. And that was the talk of uh, the SALT conference when we met there in yes. uh, May in New York. And, you know, there's still a lot of buzz around the strategy, but also a little bit of scrutiny over whether, you know, there are too many people rushing in now. So what's your take on private credit at the moment? Um, so private credit is something that we've been investing in now for many years. Um, and so it's not changed particularly um, but I would say that given the rate environment now, strategies like, you know, senior lending have become especially attractive mm. because, um, you know, an investor can earn sort of low double digit returns um, through this type of strategy and with very, very little risk. So I think that it's especially interesting to think about things like that. And I, I'm not really reaching for some of the um, more... Uh, more esoteric ideas at the moment and just focusing on this because you can sort of clip a a very healthy coupon without taking that much risk. So I think that private credit broadly is still extremely attractive. Um, But, you know, as always, you know, when something's very popular, you must make sure that you are investing with the right managers. And that's, I think, where where the real, you know, success or lack of success happens. Um, And so, I think we spend a significant amount of time as a firm. Um, our research team f- spends a significant amount of time underwriting these private credit opportunities, and we only really invest in a, a very small handful of the, the, the broader opportunity set. Yeah, interesting. And what about private equity at the moment? It's also a space that has been attracting a lot of uh, discussion. Yeah, um, and, 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 and this will be something that, Again, for us, is is not a new thing. Um, you know, we've been investing in private equity, venture capital, since the '70s, and it's a, it happens to be a very uh, important portion of what we put in our client portfolios. Because, as I said, at the heart of it, we have long term um, asset owners, and mm-hmm. when and when you have a very long term horizon, as you you know do with endowments and foundations. You can tolerate the liquidity of private equity and private equity obviously will have its ebbs and flows. And, and we know that recently there's been sort of some popping of the froth, um, which is a good thing um, because it makes, you know, valuations more attractive for entry points. And, yeah. you know, one can never time uh, the market, um, not the public market or the private markets. Um, and so what I've tended to do um, is essentially just 
continue, you know, and, and maintain the vintage or diversification and invest in, in private equity opportunities. Um, but more than ever, I would say in private equity and venture, the manager selection is critical because it does make the difference between making, you know, double digit returns or actually losing money. So not even not making money, but rather losing money. Um, and that's where the dispersion of returns is the huge, that in that asset class, you see the hugest dispersion of returns. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we're really focusing on, you know, what we think makes sense there. And that continues to be sort of lower middle market, um, highly focused firms, even specialist firms, um, because they can sort of weather downside better than generalist firms. Um, and, you know, firms with very strong operational expertise, et cetera. But um, I think our mantra towards private equity hasn't changed at all, um, but we are very aware that, um, you know, it's it's a space where there's a lot of money going in. So you have to be, you know, extremely careful where you're investing. Yeah. And are there any particular sectors within private equity that you favor or do you like a, a broad coverage? Yeah. So, you know, we really... It, it's very, very difficult to sort of tie the sector because, of course, private equity plays out over multiple years. Um, mm. And so what we try to do is actually build a portfolio of a number of specialist firms. So if we have, a, you know, healthcare or, you know, IT, software services, et cetera, we're putting it side by side. But we would rather pick a firm that knows their sector inside out um, and pair it with another firm. Um, that knows their sector inside out rather than choosing a, a, a generalist firm that's going to do five sectors because it's awfully difficult to do everything really well. Um, and so I wouldn't say that we're f- trying to pick sectors, but rather pick specialists, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, let's turn to hedge funds. Um, how much are you investing in hedge funds now on, on behalf of clients? And, and how do you think about building a hedge fund portfolio? Yeah. Um, so this has seen some change over time. Um, in fact, I was actually looking at some big picture numbers um, of, of trends the other day of, of um, all of our endowment clients. And what I noticed was that over a 10 year horizon, allocations to hedge funds have gone from sort of uh, uh, 20% to sort of mid-teens. So mm. there's been a drop there, but still a healthy allocation, in, you know, even if it was sort of in mid-teens. Um, and for our pension clients, you know, we will tend to have hedge fund allocations anywhere from 7.5-ish percent to sort of 15% as well. Um, mm. it, it, it ranges, and I'll tell you why it ranges, the allocation. One, I'm trying to sort of figure out first and foremost what we're solving for. Um, if we're solving for a lot of growth orientation um, and, you know, a a portfolio can tolerate illiquidity. Um, You know, there is place for private equity and and, and venture and real estate and real assets, et cetera. Mm. And it crowds out some of the hedge fund allocation. So uh, in other words, I can't have a 20% allocation to all of those things because then I'll have very little liquidity in the portfolio. So some choices have to get made. Um, and I think over time, that's really what's happened. When I looked at that data and I thought about why this happened, um, well, I also noticed that over that 10-year period, um, the allocation to private equity venture has tripled. Um, and 
And that is in part, of course, performance, strong performance. Um, and also, you know, just the popularity of the asset class. Um, so, so that sort of relationship is, I think, something you have to be aware of because these asset classes don't exist in a vacuum. They sit side by side, one another inside of a portfolio. And as an outsourced CIO, I have to think about essentially how much illiquidity I want the portfolio to have um, and where I want to take the illiquidity and where I think I might get compensated for it. Mm -hmm. um, so long story short to say that hedge fund allocations have varied, but are, you know, somewhere hovering around 10 to 15% for most of my portfolios um, where I'm not sort of having to unwind them to, to, to de-risk. Yeah. But um, how do I approach the portfolio construction is a, a completely different question as well, because um, it's what, once again, like I said, it's it's really what I'm solving for. Um, it, you know, in a lot of endowment-oriented portfolios where, you know, growth is the primary objective, um, the, the, the hedge fund program will look different. It will have more um, long-short um, and more, you know, sort of higher beta, but higher track... Um, uh, higher drawdown potentially managers. Yep. Whereas with some of the pension plans where I think drawdown risk is so important and we talked about sort of risk management and and not having to um, tolerate large drawdowns at any one time, the hedge fund programs I, I, I tend to build are much more focused on downside protection and diversification. Um, and so there I would have, tend to have a lot less long short exposure um, and more absolute return, more sort of diversifier strategies, such as like macro or trend or things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but what, what stays the same, irrespective of my objective, is that the portfolios would have to be um, very diversified. Um, so my hedge fund programs tend to have 12 to 15 names in them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, a, that's an ideal sort of lineup because that gives me sort of the the manager diversification that that I would need, um, um, but it also gives me sort of an ability to choose, you know, interesting strategies that bring something unique to the the portfolio. Um, and so we'll tend to have twelve to fifteen managers across absolute return, long short, and sort of diversifying strategies. Um, and I will also size them in a way that sort of reflects the risk and return profile. Yeah, and, and I know it will vary depending on whether it's an endowment client or a pension client and different clients have different specifications. But are there any hedge fund strategies that you particularly favor at the moment? It's really, that's such a tough question because um, people always tend to say they favor the stuff that's done the most well recently. That's sort of <laughs> yeah. a human habit. So I don't want to say that. Um, I, w I will say, though, that, um, you know, We've I, I've been looking at a lot of really interesting um, uh, multi-strategy credit managers, um, and and I think that because the environment has changed so much, you know, we've gone from low interest rates to high interest rates, low inflation to high inflation. Um, I'm definitely interested in, in managers that have the the flexibility and the skill to invest in different types of. Um, parts of the market, like they can do credit or they can do equities or they can do distressed and they're able to rotate the capital as they see um, the opportunities sort of emerge. Obviously, they can rotate. They're so much closer to it than, than an outsourced CIO. So, you know, um, it's really 
it, it's really nice to have some of those managers in the portfolio. Um, you know, so they, for example, you know, when the when it's time to look at distressed opportunities, there are managers that I'm invested in that I know will will turn into that. I mean, this is probably quite a good time to um, just talk in general about active versus passive management, because if you look at the years after the 2008 crisis, you know, you could do quite well through you know passive management. Now there's so much more turbulence and volatility, higher rates, inflation. Um, are we back in a time where active management should be in the ascendant? Absolutely. This is such a, a topic that um, it's a forever topic, I would say, um, one that I think and talk about all the time. And, you know, here's my approach to it. Um, I actually have both in my portfolio, both active and passive. Um, that being said, it, my portfolio is largely lean active um, only because I have the benefit of sitting inside of an organization that has, you know, a couple of hundred people that are out there looking for, um, you know, fantastic managers. And um, and so I, I have the toolkit that I can rely on to build the active part of the portfolio. That being said, I think that passive and active each play an important role in my mm. portfolios. Um, passive, you know, obviously is cheap and it's liquid and it gets me the broad market exposure very quickly. Um, but it also sort of affords me the flexibility to rebalance and to glide. And I just a few minutes ago, I talked about, you know, the glide path and how mm. Structurally, I had to move pension portfolios, you know, over the course of a couple of quarters. Um, and, you know, if your money is in, in only active managers and those active managers happen to be underperforming, it doesn't feel great taking assets from them. But um, it's nice when you pair active and passive because the passive gives you sort of that flexibility to rebalance. Um, and also it sort of gives me a little bit of a liquidity budget to pair passive with you know, active that may be less liquid. Um, and mm -hmm. so I'll give you a perfect example in my, one of my, in, in a couple of my portfolios, I have some highly specialized managers um, in, you know, like an Asia focused manager that is public equities long only um, and has, you know, phenomenal skill and performance, but they, they have quarterly liquidity. Um, and so, you know, in public equities, having quarterly liquidity um, can be, difficult unless you pair it with something that has daily liquidity. Yeah. And so in my emerging markets equities portfolio, I have some passive emerging markets equities alongside some specialist managers, you know, it, whether they're geographically specialized or, or, or style specialized, you know, value or growth, that's um, not, not as relevant. But the fact that I'm pairing them so that having passive affords me the ability to have the other. Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. Um, well, this has been great, Sona. I want to finish up by asking you about what's kind of on your mind or the, the key trends as we look ahead to 2024 now that you're focused on. Yeah, so sort of lots. And, and I sort of alluded to it earlier to say I feel that the environment has changed. And, you know, we were chugging along for so many years, uh, every year a little bit more of the same. And all of a sudden we are in a, a very... Um, a very different environment with higher interest rates, which are not going anywhere anytime soon, mm -hmm. um, higher inflation. Um, and so, you know, I think the playbook for what the portfolio needs uh, and to sort of do well has to change. But even before that, I think the institutions we work with, the pension plans, the endowments, the hospitals, 
you know, they are rethinking their own objectives right now because so much change has happened, especially after COVID. And so in the last year and, and, and going into 2024, I'm working with a lot of my um, clients to sort of rethink what their objectives are and update them to reflect their current situation. And, and, and many, many institutions have struggled through COVID and, and their financial situation is different. And so understanding the new context becomes extremely important. Um, and that new context then has to be reflected in the investment strategy. So mm-hmm. I'm essentially re-underwriting my investment strategy uh, for a lot of the institutions I work with to reflect their new reality. Um, and sometimes that means taking on more risk. Um, and then I have to sort of identify where that's where that um, where that risk is adequately um, you know compensated. Uh, and or it it means you know protecting what they've achieved and, and taking less risk. So I'm doing a lot of re-underwriting of my portfolios, not just the asset allocation, but even the managers um, that I have in there. Um, there's are, there are many managers that have served uh, our portfolios really well for the last five to 10 years. But I think that I would like to proactively ask myself, will they serve us well in the next five to 10 years in a different environment? Um, and so my team and I are going through that process over the next few quarters. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's very exciting um, because I'd, I'd like to obviously get in front of, of this um, and, and, um, and, and be proactive. But it's, 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 it's a new world. And I think that we just have to think about the, the playbook and find differentiated sources of, of generating returns and alpha um, for the portfolios. Yeah, well, that's great. Thank you so much for joining me on AFI. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again to Sona. If you haven't already, please follow AFI on LinkedIn and sign up to our free newsletter, an essential read for anyone in hedge funds and private markets at alternativefundinsight.com. If you are looking for more information about hedge fund launches, performance or other industry information, please consider membership. Contact me for sample content or a demo of what AFI offers. That's it for now. Until next time on Alternative Fund Insight. Thank you.